Season two of the All at Once podcast is presented by Alan and Beth Stanfield of Stanfield Properties, proud sponsors since the podcast's beginning. Contact Alan and Beth Stanfield for all your realty needs. They're the actual best in every way. Those who have power and have advantages have responsibility to care for those who don't have those things. I learned each lesson over and over and over again. This is the All at Once podcast for women and those who love them. I'm Kelly Browning. And I'm Sarah McDuffie. We are God's image bearers, exploring ways religion has been distorted to silence the marginalized and to justify abuse. We are Christians seeking to comfort, heal, and free people from the pain caused by our own religion. We carry much, like all of humanity, all at once. To God be the glory. We want you to know that our show is not for little ears. Also, the content we cover may be triggering for those who have experienced trauma. The people we interview present ideas that we align with, and they also present ideas that make us uncomfortable. I invite you to join us in this discomfort as our views, opinions, and experiences are challenged. So, take what is good and beneficial for you and leave what isn't. Here we go. David Bridges, pastor of my home church, fellow Enneagram 8, father of four incredible adult children, my friends. Welcome to the All at Once podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to be here with you. Like Jason, who we heard from in episode one of season two, the very first episode of this season, David is also the husband of a guest we had in season one. He is Rochelle's husband, who taught us about shame resilience and how to identify shame in season one. Her episode was outstanding. I highly recommend you go listen to her if you haven't yet. So I thought that was just a really cool connection that the husbands of the wives are on the podcast in season two. So that's a cool thing. At what point did you know that you wanted to be a pastor? <laughs> I'm not sure that 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 this story will uh, answer the question like maybe you'd expect. But in a lot of ways, I kind of got offered job after job after job and it, becoming a pastor just happened to me. Mm -hmm. I've worked there for the Friends Church for over 30 years and in youth ministry and in our denominational offices. The chance to come to Friendswood to work on the staff here at Friendswood Friends Church was something that I was very excited about because I knew people here and had friends here. It was probably not until our senior pastor that I came to work with retired, I had the opportunity to, to apply to be the pastor, that I really thought, okay, I'm making a choice here. Uh, about what I'm going to do, at least for the next period of time in my life. So in a lot of ways, it, being a pastor just happened to me. But in some ways, too, I came to a point where I thought this is a challenging job and it, it'll be a challenge for me. And I think that I have some of the gifts that, that are required for it. Mm -hmm. And I want to learn how to do it. So that I guess that's the best answer I can give on that. I'm really grateful that you applied for that job. You know this, but you've just been a huge influence on my life. And I'm really grateful for you, Thank you. and for you being obedient to God's calling in your life. That's a good thing. So one of the things that was so alarming to me whenever I started attending Friends Church eight years ago was whenever I heard Cindy Dawson preach for the first time, which was the first time I ever heard a woman preach. And I, I remember looking around and being like, are we okay with this? Like, is this a normal thing? How are we feeling about this? And, and nobody was surprised. I was the only one surprised in the room. So what I want to know is, have you always kind of believed 
that women are ordained as, as preachers and teachers and leaders. Did you grow up believing and seeing women represented in church leadership? Yeah, my family joined the Friends Church when I was uh, about nine years old. And so in our tradition, women have always been elevated into positions of leadership and power in the church. And uh, and that's something that I like to brag about. It's not something that's a result of the women's liberation movement in the United States. It's a theological decision that Quakers made 350 years or so ago. And just saying that we see the same light of Christ in both men and women, and we see women gifted for leadership, just like we see men. And so I grew up in a tradition in the community that that elevated the, the position of women However, there were a few women pastors. I mean, I knew a few as a kid, some retired female pastors in my church, but I, most of our pastoral leadership in the churches I'd been in were, were males. It wasn't until later on when I began working in the Friends Church that I began to know some other women that were in ministry. In a one way, that has just come to me and it's been a part of my faith and understanding of, of faith for a long time. But I would say that it's also been it's also been affirmed in my experience. Mm -hmm. So my dad just always spoke very, very highly of my mother's intellect. And my dad was an academic, a gifted academic who had very demanding jobs and responsibilities. But he always said, mom is the smartest person in this house. Mm -hmm. And so I saw them model a partnership and marriage in which she was deeply respected. And all that, along with the community I grew up in, the church community, I just kind of affirmed that. Then when I was a young person starting in youth ministry, I saw other women in, in jobs just like mine, other youth pastors, that were doing their jobs as well as I was doing and with just as much giftedness. It was a natural thing for me to say, of course, women have the gifts for the work that I'm doing. So I think that's so interesting because it's just so different from how I was raised. And I did not know that people like you existed until, well, I met you. And uh, it's just so incredible to me to know that there's whole generations of families that come from similar backgrounds. That's a cool thing. I would add this. When I was younger, I didn't really even think about this issue very much. It's really been in the last 20 years or so, having moved to Texas which is a more conservative place than where I've lived in the past and where very conservative Christian traditions dominate the Christian landscape mm -hmm. that I've become more aware of, of that issue. And then on the national, you know, on the national level, some things have happened in the last 20 years that have yeah. made, made this an issue as well. So it's not something as a kid that I thought about or, or really paid much attention to because my tradition elevated women and my experience said, women were just as gifted as, as I was. So given those beliefs that you have, what are some ways that you're aware of that your approach to spiritual leadership and power differs from a lot of other spiritual leadership that we can see in Christian communities, uh, I guess, in the South and evangelicalism today? And uh, what specific beliefs do you feel like you hold about humanity and how God calls us to relate to each other and to him that kind of cause you to approach these things differently? I don't know if I can answer how my approach to leadership and power is different mm -hmm. from other people, because I know a lot of people that think about leadership and 
power in the ways that I do. And I've seen other pastors and, and other leaders that that think and practice things the way I do. Well, you you asked what might be some core convictions or something that I believe that drives some of that. And I would say that my conviction that there's that of God in every person, that somehow each person is made in the image of God and that we have a responsibility to honor that and to celebrate that. And as people in themselves embrace God and want to follow Jesus, that we we have this understanding that every person, no matter who it is, is, is gifted and called by God in some way or another in ways that need to be celebrated and affirmed. So a lot of pastors are in, I mean, you are in a position of power as a pastor. You you have control and leadership over your organization. And so at what point, you kind of talked about this a little bit before, where you don't view power in the same ways that other, other people probably view power. But was there a point that you realized that you do have some power here and some responsibility to do something to address the lack of representation by marginalized people groups. First to say that my tradition, the Friends Church, is a very flat organization and there's no hierarchy. There's very little hierarchy. There's very little power and authority that get exercised by one or two people. So my role as a pastor in the Friends Church is different than some other traditions much less authority than a priest in an Episcopal church or a Catholic church, much less authority even than a Methodist or Baptist in a lot of ways. So because Mm -hmm. Quakers are so strictly egalitarian, there's a lot of shared leadership. So power in my setting tends to be earned power, earned authority more than it is positional authority. Yes. So that's the first thing to say. That's good. But there obviously are ways in which I have earned some authority in in our congregation. And I'm thankful for that. And how did I realize that? I don't know. I (laughs) I probably haven't thought about that deeply, but, but I have at times understood these are some ways that I have power to shape and form our congregation, our church. And I've wanted to use that appropriately. But I haven't tended to think about power in leadership. I haven't seemed to tended to think about leadership in terms of power. Mm. Not very often. I've just tried to live out what I understand the scriptures to be saying, which which I think is that those who have power and have advantages and have wealth are have responsibility to care for those who don't have those things and to to help those who do those things or don't have those things to look out for those who don't have power and wealth and advantages. I don't think the scriptures could be clear about this. The Bi- I mean, if you read the Bible, it's all over the place. The directions to the leaders in the Bible consistently, constantly say, those of you with authority, you better look out for the, the little guy, if you mm-hmm. will. You better look out for the people that don't have the power, the wealth, the authority that you do. Mm-hmm. So it's. I think that's very clear. I know that you have sought out people of color's opinions and perspectives, which we're going to talk more specifically about that in a little bit. But you have been very intentional about addressing the lack of representation in our church, which has caused other churches to kind of notice. Um, And and my, I mean, churches that people I know attend have looked to our church and said, how did they they do that? (laughs) How can I do that here? And 
so how how have you or or have you even had to address since you've been in the French tradition, I guess you haven't really had to address the lack of representation with females, but you have had to address that in a mostly white evangelical church. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's a really hard thing to do. And I've done a lot of reading about that. And I've talked to a lot of people who are doing doing it well, and I'm not sure that there's a, a formula. This is what to do. This is how to do it. I think it's highly contextual. The main thing I try to do is simply to model that kind of behavior. I try to reach out so that I, to make friends with people of color. There aren't, Friendswood is a community that is somewhere, the last stat I read was maybe 93% white. Mm. That may be a little bit higher than it is now. And so it's, it's probably not realistic to think that our church is going to become multicultural. However, I want voices from people of color, from people from different places in the world to speak into our congregation because their experiences are are rich and can make our experiences richer. Mm -hmm. And then the other part of it is knowing that the narrative that I have about life and about faith, about how the world works, is not the only narrative that's out there. And that by listening to other people, we tend to have opportunities for growth and and transformation and change. And, and so I've wanted that in my own life. Personally, I've wanted to know how people think very differently than I do, why they think differently than I do. And I've wanted that then for our congregation too. Mm-hmm. Being near to people who are different from us changes us and welcoming people into our church and, and, and amplifying those voices to shape and form those who are listening is a huge way to, to change the world. And because one of the things I'm a teacher again, and so that I think about is, yeah, I, I might only have a handful of students of color in my classroom, but the students who I'm teaching are going to go out into other places where it is going to be multicultural. And I want them to model good behavior and to amplify their voice as well for whenever they're not in this homogenous white place. And I think that's that's something that you do a really good job of and that I hope to emulate as a teacher in, in the same ways. You read nothing but books from people of color for five years. Is that right? Probably not full five years, but for a, for a significant period of time. What happened is I, I went for my very last class in seminary. I went on a trip to Israel and Palestine that was designed to be a dual narrative trip. In other words, they want us to learn about the conflict that was there by both trying to understand the Israeli story of it and the Palestinian story of it. And it was, I don't say this about very many things, but it was really a life-changing experience for me. Not because I learned about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as much as I learned the power of narrative to shape life, belief, cause conflict, it's not just individual, but communal and, and national and international conflict. And I came home realizing that there were more narratives at work in my own culture, in my own place than just mine, mm-hmm. and that I really needed to learn what some of those were. So I came home with just this deep desire to learn the narratives of people of color and of different sexual and gender identities. And I started reading Black authors and making Black friends purposefully. It, it's helped me learn all kinds of things about my own privilege and how I can leverage whatever power I might have for the sake of others that have less. Mm-hmm. So part of my reading, I just decided I've just got to read people I haven't read in the past, or maybe I've read a few of their books or something. And I, and I have to do that. 
I learn mostly by reading. That's what my wife would tell you that she's an audible learner. I, I'm not as much. And so I read and read and read, and it's, it's just helped me understand things I did not understand. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm super thankful for it. I think we can read one book or we can listen to one talk and, and compartmentalize it or think deeply about it. But what I like about what you did is it kind of lets you marinate in something so you can seep in those experiences. Cause I think we move too fast beyond something that we should maybe pay t- more attention to. And so by, by making that choice over a long period of time, it really allows you to be changed. And, and that's good. That's good advice. I'm, I'm a friend of a couple guys who run a peacemaking organization, and they talk about the when we see conflict or when we're in a place of conflict, the first thing we have to do after seeing it is move into it in a position of curiosity and in a, in a, from a place of wanting to understand and learn. That you can't just see, oh, here's this problem, and then go right to solution. That you have to be become a part of it so that you actually learn what's happening before you can ever contend for change. For me, that's what happened coming back from Israel and Palestine. I said, I have to get, I have to immerse into the places that I haven't been and to hear the voices that I haven't heard in order to have any idea how to, first of all, how to just be a faithful person myself. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, how to be a faithful pastor. Mm-hmm. That's a really cool way to do that. And it's a good example to set for other people to follow as well, the whole immersion process to be more curious. I like that. Was your seminary experience, what was it like? I was educated in the Presbyterian tradition. Um, oh, okay. And so I did half my MDiv at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary and then finished at Fuller Seminary, which is historically and and still now largely Presbyterian. And so I, I did have female classmates. I had female professors. My very first seminary professor was female and she was brilliant. And I, I loved it. My systematics professor was a brilliant woman. And so what, what they did do, what I was exposed to in seminary was different readings of the scripture from perspectives of people that weren't white, privileged, powerful men. Very quickly, I was reading Hispanic theologians and black theologians, womanist theology, liberation theology. Wow. And, cool. and uh, was exposed to things I hadn't been exposed to, but it, it felt right to me, a lot of those things. That's so, very cool. Yeah. Did you run into, while you were in seminary, like current, during that kind of developmental process, did you come into contact with others where who were training to be in leadership who seemed to have different beliefs or ideas as y'all were going through this education process together? Absolutely. And and maybe I should say this. I, one of the reasons I went to the Presbyterian Seminary was because I was not raised in the Reformed tradition. And I'd been taught lots of things about why I should reject certain parts of Reformed theology and I kind of wanted to learn those things myself. And I came out of that experience with a deep respect for Reformed positions and a far better understanding of why Reformed theologians take the positions they do and say the things they say. Did you encounter people with beliefs or any te- teachings while you were in seminary that seems to kind of perpetuate the problem of inequality? And if you did, how how did you react or respond in the moment? And what are your reflections now? Coming back to it, I I went into a place where I knew that I was going to believe things 
that were different than a lot of my classmates and some of my professors. And that was certainly true. But but where I was was a space where that kind of disagreement and engagement with one another was was it was a very safe and a rich space most of the time. And um, it was a place that was um, progressive in a lot of ways, not as much theologically as much as socially, but it was a, a place that was safe for those kinds of discussions to take place. And our professors were introducing us to two different authors and writers and theologians that were trying to push boundaries and get people to think in, in new ways and in new terms. I, I loved seminary. I just loved it. It was where I felt like, you know, I could do this a, for a long time, just sit in this kind of environment because I, I grew up in a family where we debated and, and heated debates, but felt deep, deep love for one another and but we were comfortable in conflict and so seminary was a very comfortable place for me personally so there were a lot of times where i thought no i don't agree with that and i don't believe that and i you know i came out of that experience having deep respect for reformed theology but not not walking away embracing most of it anyway <laughs> so um yeah we encountered a lot of there were a lot of times in a lot of places where there was disagreement. It was a fun environment for me. Specifically in terms of gender roles and beliefs that might perpetuate gender inequality, were there times when you noticed that there were people who held different beliefs and what how would, what were your feelings about that? Probably not a lot of times. The, those seminaries were beyond those issues in a lot of ways. There were ways in which the egalitarian and complementarian is that right the right views that those things were kind of rising up nationally as i was finishing seminary and so those things were starting to to be more of a focus but the pcusa the presbyterian church usa had been ordaining women in ministry for many many years by that time and so there wasn't a lot of discussion about that my sister-in-law one of the things that she tells me i'm very close to my my in-laws i have great in-laws shout out to them but megan Whenever I started this podcast, I had a lot of flack. That's no secret. Had a lot of criticism and just, you know, not nice things said about me in relation to the work I do here. And she said, do these people know that this isn't a new thing? You know, this is this has already been decided and debated. And it's clear what the Bible says about women. And that is that they're equally ordained by God in all the places and all the roles. And I was just like, wow, no, I did not. I don't think they realize that. That is just a it is an older, a lot of traditions have, have already wrestled this down many, 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 many years ago. That's kind of what I'm gathering. And also, too, that it's a, also a little bit of a regional thing. Yeah. Like you had said, where you grew up somewhere and where this, this wasn't as much of an issue. So what advice do you have for people pursuing education or a path into ministry with regard to imbalance of power? I'm not sure that I have a, a lot of advice. I, I will say, go to a place that you will feel challenged. So if you're, if you're thinking about attending seminary, I would, my personality is to go somewhere to expose myself to something where I know maybe going in, they're going to say a lot of things that are different than what I think and believe. And, and that's my personality. I want to understand why somebody thinks differently than I do, because I, I want to get it right. And, 
and maybe they have some truth to offer me and often they do. And so that would be my advice is go to a place where you will feel challenged. And I don't know how that addresses your question about an imbalance of power, but I think that you'll find in this, in the United States anyway, that, that most seminaries are places where they're yeah. talking about these issues and making space to talk about them. I think that's really cool. Um, that makes me happy to hear that. <laughs> so Sarah, the reason why I think you're asking these questions is because a while back you were considering going to seminary and you were told you shouldn't. You were told you shouldn't because you're a woman mm -hmm. and that it would be a waste of time and money because I cannot be in leadership. So. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And that, and that's for sure. In certain traditions, I have a, a friend who's a pastor in the third ward and she did her MDiv at, I, I think the name is Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth while she was working in Dallas. And she was a television executive and worked at the news station in Dallas. And she went and to seminary there. And she was one of the few females in classes. And she said that every class, no matter the subject, history, Bible, preaching, Christian education, whatever the class was, ethics, that they always talked about can women be pastors? And mm -hmm. so she was in a, a pretty hostile place. And when she did her doctorate then in Washington, D.C., she said it was brought up over and over and over. So, but you can find places if you're looking where they're going to create kind, safe spaces for you. So I hope you can. I, I chose a different career path now, but um, I could be a counselor. So <laughs> she still is pursuing her master's. It's just something different, which is wonderful. Good. We're grateful for her. It's just so interesting as we're having this conversation how m my lens and how I even see Christian culture and as we're having this conversation I'm realizing your experience has been so different than mine y'all know each other and so you're more aware of each other's experiences but your experience was also more similar to mine mm -hmm. and so even as we're having this conversation I think it is so cool to be to to realize oh wow there, there is a way to be a follower of Jesus and fully embrace all of these beliefs that all people are equally created in God's image. And that's not even really a question. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's different for me to have a conversation where I realize, oh, I don't have to be defensive about this. Especially the evangelical church is very, very concerned about being right. And the, but the truth is that version the evangelical version of Christianity in the United States in the 21st century is a very small slice of the Christian pie, if you will, in what Christians across the world believe. And it's even smaller slice for what Christians have believed throughout history. And to understand that is liberating from, I think, some of the fear that comes with people who are worried about, do I have everything right? And so I... I, that's something I tell my kid, told my kids a lot growing up. This is what we think. This is our view. But not everybody that follows Jesus or claims to follow Jesus would agree with us on this. Um, we might be a small slice of the pie on this issue. Mm -hmm. And that, that's an important, I, I think it's an important way to remain humble as we're working, trying to work through issues and ideas like this. Yeah. How has God affirmed you, David, and met you as you've pressed into these systemic issues that 
and other communities or places in the nation and world would maybe not be met with such hostility. But how has God met you there and affirmed you as you've pressed into it? I enjoy making new friends, seeing others succeed. So maybe that's part of how, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I'm not sure. Over the past few years, I've been blessed with some friendships that have been very, very supporting to me personally. And Mm -hmm. maybe that's part of God's affirmation. I didn't know that before Laura and I preached together and she said so directly that our church affirms women. I didn't know that our church showed so directly affirmed women in every role, the friends church as a, as a, mm-hmm. as a whole. And I was like, wow, that's, that's a new info. And she talked about Burl and how he like stood up at one meeting one time forever ago. And someone brought up women preaching and Burl said, women have preached here for as long as I've been alive and they're going to keep preaching here. <laughs> and that was the end of the discussion. That's authority. Yeah. That's earned authority. Mm-hmm. Stand up. This is the truth. Right. No more questions. What criticism or hardship have you faced as you celebrate women and marginalized voices in the places you've been? To be really fair, I think it's been very little. Mm -hmm. Um, Our church is a generous group of people who are thankful for those kinds of experiences and those different voices. Few people have been unhappy with me about the things I've said about race, Mm -hmm. especially in the last year and a year and a half. But really, we have a a generous group of people over there, so not a lot. Maybe that'll change in the future. But I hope not. Sarah and I were talking about just harm that churches cause and whether or not they're safe places for people like us. And um, one of the things that I love about our church is how safe and kind they are as we press into these issues. And one thing that has I've learned from Jason and Matt and Sarah and all these people who, Laura, who I'm close to and see and witness at our churches, holding to competing or opposing views and tension and walking in the middle of it and seeing the value in light of God and the person representing each issue, even though we might be opposing that. And that's something I saw you really gracefully do whenever you preached about racism and your own complicity in racism is holding those views in tension. So when you do get criticism, even if it's if it's rare, I think that you sharing with us kind of what you focus on when that arises could be more helpful because a lot of us like me, you know, I I am in a lot of critical places and I get a lot of criticism from people. I I'm often not in, you know, our church is our home base, but that's not where I get to live all the time, which I wish I could just stay in that community, but God calls us outside of those four doors, four walls. So what truth do you focus on or what, what do you kind of meditate on when that conflict does arise and they say things that they can't put back in their mouth? I'm not sure if it's a specific idea or truth as much as it is people. So Rochelle helps me keep perspective. My spiritual director that I've been meeting with for 21 years helps me keep perspective. A few of my friends that I've mentioned are just immensely supportive and helpful to me in those kind of situations. So I I don't know if I focus on certain truth as much as I do simply try to reach out to those who I know will care for me Mm -hmm. when things are pressing me. Yeah. I forgot what it's called, but Rochelle told me to do this. It's like a one inch by one inch box. It's an exercise by Brene Brown. I think we talked about it in season one. I can't remember, but you write the names of the people in your box who you know are for you and who also won't shy away from the truth with you and uh, who will direct you and orient you towards Jesus. And I think that's great practice to adopt in our lives is when we are facing criticism or if we aren't sure of what is true or who we are is to point to those people who've earned the right to say who you are. 
So I listened to a sermon of yours recently where you talk about how justice, mercy, and humility need to go together in order to make things right. And I think the concept of justice is often kind of skimmed over from the pulpit in a lot of churches, especially with regard to social justice issues. Can you talk about our calling as followers of Jesus to pursue justice? I think Jesus was one, depending on how you define justice, if we're talking about criminal justice and just criminal justice, that's different. You could say Jesus is somebody who pursued justice for people, whether that meant restoring them economically into their communities, whether it meant um, restoring someone they dearly loved or restoring someone who had been excluded from community, that Jesus was somebody who did those things. But if you read the whole Bible, not just the Gospels, if you read the whole Bible and pay attention, it's really hard to ignore the calls to justice that are there. I mean, it is just over and over and over. In in the prophets especially, they are speaking to the powers that be. They're mm-hmm. speaking to the kings and, and the leadership councils. There's, it's politics. And we have these strict separation between religion and politics. That wasn't there. It was the prophets are speaking to the political powers and the religious powers, and they're not necessarily separate ones. And they're over and over and over again saying, pay attention to the poor, to the widow, to the alien, to the orphan, and do what is right for them. Mm -hmm. Over and over and over, they're saying that. And so if you read the scriptures, you can't miss that. It's there. And the work that Jesus did to befriend and restore and bring healing to people who were sometimes on the margins of their community seems to be a clear example of what he's asking us to do. We call ourselves followers of Jesus. Then we want to do the things Jesus did and say the things Jesus said and the things that we think Jesus would do and say now if he were here in our own shoes. I think that the work for justice is part a part of that. And that if we believe Jesus is someone who came to redeem and restore the world, and if we believe that that following Jesus is more than just saying, okay, I like this gift of salvation that gets me a ticket into heaven. If we think that it's more than that, that somehow that our salvation is also a way in which we accept the call to be part of God's restoring work in our world, Mm -hmm. then it seems that justice work has to be a part of that. We were just talking about that too, right before you drove up here for your interview was how we define the gospel. We were talking about how often, and we, we were just, you know, brainstorming. This is something I haven't really done a lot of work in, but I'm really interested in doing more work and understanding is not a ticket out of hell and into heaven. The good news, what we preach and teach and evangelize isn't going to heaven. It's shalom now and healing now. I don't have to wait to go to heaven to feel safe. I can do that now. I can feel whole now. I can be fully present with the the four people in this room right now. Five years ago, Kelly Browning would not feel confident enough to, well, one, start a podcast, but two, just to stand here and and speak off the cuff to you. I mean, like there's wholeness and healing and like, like that is the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is here now and our wholeness is now. And I just, I'm excited for us to, I guess, talk more about that in next season or future seasons is how we define the gospel and how much of that shapes how churches drive themselves. And, and maybe 
I think there's a lot of reason why our churches are aren't meeting the needs of our community is because the way that they're defining the gospel is falling short. Mm-hmm. When I was listening to this particular sermon, I I thought it was especially impactful when you were talking about how the Bible describes justice in a way that lifts up the marginalized and disempowered and not in a way that insists that everyone gets equal treatment. So can you kind of elaborate on that, the difference between those two things and what that means for us practically? Yeah, my understanding of of justice in the Bible is not that everyone gets treated equally, but that the way people are treated has an equalizing effect. Mm-hmm. So I told the story in in that sermon about my dad when I was a kid, always being on my brother, my little brother's team when we played basketball or making the rules so that my brother Jonathan had an advantage when we played. And I asked, was that fair? It might not be fair in the sense of, is it equal? No, it wasn't equal, but it was equalizing treatment. And that is the kind of idea that comes from the Bible about what justice is and what and what just justice looks like. The Bible calls that kind of equalizing treatment just. So for those who have a lot of wealth and power, a lot is expected. They're expected to give people who don't have wealth and power extra strikes if they're pitching to them in baseball mm-hmm. and extra time to run the first base. So that means in any society of the people who have the most power need to use it to lift up those around them who have little. And that's not a very American thing to say. No. But it is the kind of thing that the Bible says in the exact way that Jesus taught and lived. Right. That's how Jesus lived out his life. I mean, if we're, if we're truly following the way that Jesus lived and following the example he set for us, then we're looking to lift up people who are put down, marginalized, suffering we're giving away our power to the disempowered, mm-hmm. just yeah. like Jesus did. And I saw you model that for me. I The proudest moment for me as a member of our church was the sermon following George Floyd's death. That was a really hard season of my own personal life because I could no longer, after George Floyd was murdered, I could no longer be silent about racism in my family and in my my friend groups. And it, it came at great cost to me. I lost friends and family over taking a stand against racism. And so when I watched that sermon and I watched you take that same risk and you confessed your own complicity in racism, it was an incredible, empowering moment for me. And what was that experience like for you? It was a highly emotional experience for me. I, I don't know if it was the right thing to do or if what I said was right, but I knew I had to do it, that I had to say those things in order to be true to myself yeah. and to be true as a pastor of our church. Real social change has to begin with confession mm-hmm. and with pointing the finger at ourselves. And so I knew for there to be any change in my life and maybe in any of the peoples around me that I had to say, I'm complicit in this and that I had to confess that. Mm -hmm. So that felt, like you said, somewhat risky to me, but it also enabled me to sleep at night, Yeah, which is a good thing. Yeah. And that's, is that how you knew it was the right thing to do? Like, how did you know that this is what I must do? My intellectual curiosity about the, the black experience in the United States that had been going on for a while had 
taken me to a place where I was willing to say, there, there are things I have to say now and there are things I have to do. And a lot of the things that I've been doing in relation to building Af- relationships with African-American people have, have been very private. I'm not just, right. I'm not out there trying to say, hey, look what I'm doing in those mm-hmm. things. And so a lot of people don't know about those relationships, but I felt a call to <clears throat> say the things that I did say in some ways, a lot of it was, this is what I think it means to be faithful to Jesus. But mm-hmm. some of it is, this is what I think it means to be faithful to my friends, to my black friends. Right. That was how I discerned how I would, you know, how and what I would want to say. That was a similar thought process that I had whenever I I finally became outspoken and I attended the Black Lives Matter march in, in Friendswood. And I have too many people who have been putting themselves out there and risking their own lives because the color of their skin, they've been more outspoken about race issues. And I was very, very clearly convicted. Why am I unwilling to take these same risks for these people who are in my box, the people who have been faithful to me and who have earned the right to speak truth into my life for decades? Why am I not willing to, to, to go out and risk my, my life and my reputation? Like what reputation? Like that's not something worthy of protection, but their lives are. And, and that's important. So what advice do you have? I know Quakers, a lot of Quakers I know don't like the word advice. So I'm going to use that word loosely or experiences you could share with white male pastors and leaders in our community and and who might be listening or who, if, if you're listening and you know a white male leader or a white male pastor who wants to change, who sees the need to empower marginalized voices, specifically women and people of color, but they aren't sure how to do that within their churches and families and workplaces. Yeah, not a lot of advice. Um, I would simply say, be true to yourself, get curious, reach out to people that aren't like you and try to develop friendships. I would point them to some authors, Austin Channing Brown, Lisa Sharon Harper, James Cone, maybe Miguel de la Torre. Some, I would point them to some authors like that and say, approach this from a position of humility and curiosity with a desire desire to listen and to learn. David, before I say my last thank you and you you bow out, is there anything that you want to add to anything or say? I'm proud of you and um thankful that you're doing this work and that you're wanting to delve into some of these issues that are risky for you some in some of your relationships. And and I think I hope you'll pat yourself on the back a little bit and thank you for the way you're serving the church and the world. I do. Thank you for that. So glad in a little bit. Okay. Thank you so much for being on the All at Once podcast. You are my pastor, my friend. I'm grateful for your obedience to our creator, and I'm I'm grateful for your time that you shared with us today. It's so good to be with you. Teach me my to show how you bring back to life Before you go, if you like what you hear, please consider contributing to our podcast via Patreon, which is a monthly giving platform for creators like us. Visit the show notes for details or our website at allatonce.us. Sarah and I also want to recognize the All at Once team who works tirelessly alongside us. Robin Boren is our marketing director. 
Molly Bays is our social media manager, Taylor Diggs, our intern, and Maddie Reyna, who designed all of our podcast logos. A special thanks goes out to Alita Caldwell, owner of Funky Monkey, a boutique and shop in our hometown. There are two more people I have to shout out before you stop listening to this episode, and that is Larry's Designs in Friendswood. And lastly, and probably one of the coolest people that I need to talk about is Kate Short. She wrote the music you hear in response to season one. Check out her hit single, 2 a.m., wherever you listen to your music. Thanks for listening. While the world keeps on revealing itself.